Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin. Today, we're talking about on-chain scaling, and this is actually a panel that I moderated at the recent conference TabConf in Atlanta, early November 2021. So after the panel, I just thought I had to include this as an episode on my show. I asked the lead organizer, Michael Tidwell, so shout out for Tidwell and the organizers. Go and check out TabConf, T-A-B-C-O-N-F.com. They're a great conference. I had a great experience there. So if you're interested, make sure you check them out for next year, which they've already mentioned. They've already started that planning process. So back to this panel. So for this one, we're talking about on-chain scaling. Now, we're not talking about block size increases here. We're talking about the major constraints as the number of Bitcoin users goes up, what does it mean for the peer-to-peer network? What does it mean for verification and validation and being able to run a Bitcoin node? What does it mean for transacting with Bitcoin and being able to transact cheaply? We talk about this and we talk about various interesting ideas such as transacting in a Taproot and Music 2 world and also transacting using cross-input signature aggregation, which is another very promising idea. So for hardcore Bitcoiners, you already know very well who all the panelists are, but just if you're new, Peter Vella is one of the very highly respected Bitcoin core researchers and developers and contributors, and he's working at Chaincode Labs. Andrew Polstra, he is the director of research over at Blockstream. Uh, Andrew Chow is known for his work on Bitcoin core and the wallet also working on things like PSBT, HWI, partially signed Bitcoin transactions, and hardware wallet integration, or interface rather. And Merch is also known for his work on coin selection and helping uh, enterprise-level wallets deal with managing large wallets from a coin selection perspective. And so they're all very highly respected contributors to Bitcoin Core, so I'm sure you'll really enjoy this panel discussion. Now, this show is brought to you by swan.com. This is the easy way to accumulate Bitcoin. You can set up your BSP, your Bitcoin savings plan. Also, on the website, the front page, swan.com, there's a new savings plan calculator. So, for example, if you put in $100 a week for the last five years, you would have put in $26,000 and you would now have $361,000 worth in Bitcoin. Now, this doesn't preclude doing a lump sum purchase. You can wire in funds and start off with a lump sum. Now, if you are a high net worth investor or a business and you want to stack sats with a dedicated Bitcoin expert to help you, for example, if you've got family and friends who need more handholding or if you need that handholding yourself, go and check out swanprivate.com. You can have a dedicated expert help you with your onboarding process and give you tips and tricks around self-custody, whether that is tax form assistance or entity setup or retirement account guidance. Go to swanbitcoin.com slash levera and get started. Lend at HodlHodl is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform, so you can lend and borrow stablecoins globally and anonymously using Bitcoin as collateral. So if you have Bitcoin but you need some short-term liquidity, you can borrow stablecoins and have your Bitcoin up as collateral, where you still hold one of three keys in that deal. Now, on the other hand, if you are a stablecoin holder, you can earn some interest. You can lend it out and define the terms and the APR for your deals. So go to HodlHodl. The website there is lend.com. H-O-D-L-H-O-D-L dot com and you can sign up to borrow stablecoins or lend them globally and anonymously. Do you want to get started with Bitcoin mining? 
compassmining.io are making it easy to do just this. Go to the website and you can select an ASIC machine. You can have that shipped to your home if you're in the US, or you can have that sent to a hosting facility where it will be plugged in and set up and you will then start mining sats and you will join a mining pool. You'll pay the hosting fees, but then you'll start receiving sats. So this is a great way to get started if you don't have access to cheap electricity or uh, hosting facilities and you don't want to deal with the heat and the noise in your home. This is another option for you. So you don't need advanced technical knowledge to get started. You can go to the website and get started easily with compassmining.io. And now on to the panel. All right, guys. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, certainly, a, this is really just for people who aren't familiar, who aren't aware. This is a very uh, you know talented uh, uh, panel. So I'm definitely bringing down the average IQ here. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm here to ask the questions that you guys might be thinking of. And so we're talking about scaling Bitcoin on chain. So maybe let's just start with each of you. In your own mind, what do you see as the key challenges and constraints around scaling Bitcoin? That's a hard question. <laughs> um, well, first of all, we are looking at a gossip network where every single participant has to know about all that is going on. So this very popular early narrative that we will just put all payments on the Bitcoin blockchain certainly is not going to scale, right? And so once you've sort of gotten this fundamental truth uh, down that block space will be limited in some fashion, you can think about how you want to go from there. And I think uh, that that's maybe a good starting point for on-chain scaling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I could maybe try to, to split things up a little bit. The two kind of big areas of on-chain scalability that I think people care about are, as Merch said, like you have this peer-to-peer -peer network, you're trying to communicate transactions in real time to everybody across the world. Um, that's something I don't know anything about. The peer-to-peer -peer part of Bitcoin really scares me. I'm really glad that other people on this panel are thinking about that. And the other side, which I feel like I understand a little bit better, would be the the scalability related to verifying the actual data that's on the chain, right? How much space do you need to store the blockchain? How much bandwidth do you need to download it? And then how much computational time do you need to process all of that, both in real time, as blocks come in, can you keep up? And also when you're onboarding, like how can you verify that the history from 2008 onward is, is what you expect it to be? Uh, one, one thing I would like to mention is that, since, as Merch said, that Bitcoin is a gossip network. So sending one piece of data from one node to another, well, that you know goes to all nodes. So if we send one megabyte, that might end up being several gigabytes total in network data uh, just for the same message. So one thing that we really care about is efficiency. Uh, we want to have things that are compact and do a lot uh, so that we're not sending a ton of data everywhere. I think what I'm really hearing here, blockchains conceptually don't scale. I mean, we're, we're, it's all about trade-offs and we're really talking about a system where fundamentally we want every full participant to hear and see and validate everything. And that is a, a fundamentally very hard to scale problem. That, and I think that the, the examples being listed here are, we're really, we've been really been talking about ways in which it doesn't scale. And I think that the challenges to overcome uh, are really restricted to, on, on one hand, you know, incremental improvements, just improving the, the, the constant factors here and there, and uh, in some ways, well, don't, not scaling on, on chain. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we, I can uh, just set a little bit of the context, and our gentleman on the panel can expand a little bit. So as we speak today, the blockchain is roughly 427 or 428 gigabytes. So that means if you're downloading, you want to sync up a full node. That's that's how much you're downloading. 
Uh, and as an example, uh, as we know, Bitcoin blocks on average are 10 minutes. And let's say on average, each block has about 2000 transactions in it. And so that's kind of like a rough where we're at today. So what does it look like then uh, for people who, let's say they, they, like you were saying, Andrew, they want to verify the full chain. Uh, could you maybe outline a little bit of what that looks like in the future? Yeah. Yeah, well, let me outline what it looks like in the yeah. present, and then I, I think yeah. I'll, be, I'll be the representative of Moonmouth here and, and try to suggest that we can make everything better so that, that Peter doesn't bum everyone out too much with, with the truth and, you know, <laughs> and engineering constraints. So right now, if you're joining the Bitcoin network, what you need to do to verify that the current state of the chain, that the, where all the coins are, like which, which coins are assigned to which addresses and so forth, is you need to download the entire history of the chain. You don't need to store it necessarily, but you need to download it and you need to verify every single transaction that's ever happened. Historically, there have been, the last I checked, uh, on the order of about half a billion transactions in total on the Bitcoin network. And, and each of those has a couple ECDSA signatures. Those take maybe like 50 microseconds to verify. There's also, when a coin is being spent, you need to keep track of, of the set of unspent coins. Look that up in your database of unspent coins. Remove coins that have been spent, add coins that are being created, and every transaction sort of, you can think of a transaction as kind of a diff on the set of unspent coins. And so you need to go through that through the entire history and check, not only do you need to play forward all of those diffs in a row, but every single individual diff, every single individual transaction, you need to verify that the signatures are valid. If the signature is couched in a more complicated script, you need to verify that that script was executed correctly and so on. And so that's how things work today. Right? It's, it's kind of a slow process. So if you have all of the data, ignoring bandwidth constraints, if you have like a top of the line computer and you try to verify the Bitcoin blockchain from scratch, it's probably going to take you several hours. And when you do that, actually, this is, this is kind of a dark secret, but you aren't actually verifying the ECDSA signatures for many of the older transactions, more than a couple years older, uh, unless you, you take specific actions in order to do that. And if you did, I would guess that it would probably take you a couple of days, even with a, a very powerful computer, you know, like a, like a retail computer, but it's still a very powerful one. It would probably take you a couple of solid days of computation to go Actually, through all of that. Not that long, I think. No. So, so Jameson Lop every year does a full sync from scratch with, with all the, the optimizations turned off. And I think his most recent one was like seven hours and change for a full sync. Yeah. So that's... If you his, could, his computer is also... 32 CPUs. Um, okay. A little, <laughs> All right. a little bit more than, than your average computer, but it's not like it's more like workstation grade, not not your consumer computer. But it does it in about seven seven hours. Yeah, okay, yeah. cool. If you could maybe explain, so I presume you're talking about that's like assume valid. Yeah, example, so he does right? it with assume valid zero, yeah. which is just so, turned so off. For people who aren't familiar, um, what's what's assume valid? Uh, assume valid assumes that signatures are valid <laughs> and scripts um, and scripts are valid up to a certain block hash. So this saves on all the time verifying those. It can be turned off if there's a reorg that reorgs out that block, then it will be off. Uh, in which case you are verifying all scripts and signatures. So basically you're still building the full UTXO set from scratch by looking at the diffs, like what uh, coins are being spent and what new coins are being created but you assume that it wouldn't be in the blockchain unless the signature was valid up to a certain point. I, I guess this is the, the right point to, to mention uh, work on improving that. Uh, so there's Assume UTXO project. Um, James O'Brien is over there. James O'Brien is over there, uh, who's the main guy driving uh, that today. So um, let's take a step back and, and think about why is it okay that we don't validate signatures? And the obvious reason is, well, you are already trusting the software 
you're running. You're getting it from somewhere. There's hopefully review about it. We, we, at least in Bitcoin Core, we have a whole process where people attest, like you yourself can redo the build that builds Bitcoin Core from source and verify that the binaries being published exactly correspond to that source code. And so you, you have some necessary trust in how you get that software and what that software is doing. Like th this is just in inherent, right? You, you, you will not be doing the validation of ECDSA signatures in your head. And so given that we have this process of review, we're using effectively the same process to, to where every major release or so every half a year, the hard-coded hash of the block up to where we know signatures are valid is, is included in the software. It is placed several weeks in the past even at the time of release. There are several safeguards, like it, it only triggers when there's actually a chain that includes that block and I think two weeks on top of it and, and so forth. But what I want to stress is you're trusting the software and you're trusting the people writing the software or, or the process around it and the review. So we can use that same process to verify, you know, we know all signatures up to this hash are valid. And so going forward, is it really necessary that we process all the historical blocks? Can't you just get the result of applying all these patches as Andrew explains it as a starting point? And so that, that's what the Assume UTXO process is about, uh, allowing you to skip that process. It is, as of now, unclear where you'd get it, but just distributing data is, is not a hard problem. The internet does it every day and you know the hash, so it doesn't really matter that much. Oh, for some historic context, you, you probably remember on Bitcoin Talk in like 2010 and 2011, there were people hosting torrents of the, the Bitcoin blockchain that you could download. You could download, download the blockchain data from BitTorrent, then start your node off of that. Save yourself, maybe download. At the time, I guess Bitcoin, BitTorrent was better than the Bitcoin peer-to-peer -peer network for, for downloading this data. That's probably not true anymore, but certainly at the time it was. And so you download this data, you, you start up your node, and you can query your node and say, like, what do you think the latest block hash is? What do you think the state of the, the UTXO set? And actually, if you know the block hash and you trust that your software is running correctly, that actually implies the exact state of the system. So all you need to do is ask your node, what do you think the latest block hash is? Ask, well, somebody you trust if, if you aren't downloading it from the peer-to-peer -peer network yourself. Is this the right block hash? Is this the longest block hash? Is this the, the tip of the longest chain that anyone's seen? And, uh, and, and you can basically download the chain without, without needing to go through Bitcoin using the peer-to-peer -peer network to sync yourself. Go on. I, I'd actually like to circle back to a previous topic. So uh, Stefan earlier said that there are fit about 2,000 blocks, uh, 2,000 transactions into a block. And since we're talking about on-chain scaling, I'd like to sort of push back on the unit of scale transaction because one of the things that has actually significantly helped in scaling up payments on the Bitcoin network was that a lot of especially enterprise entities have started batching payments into transactions. So the average size of transactions has gone significantly up because especially enterprises doing withdrawals and batches have been starting to send transactions with like 200 outputs to pay 200 customers in one transaction. And since the input size is so significantly bigger than the output size, where you would have one input maybe and two outputs to make a single payment, one output to pay the recipient and one to return change to yourself. When you pay 200 people in a single transaction, you have only one single change output instead of 200, and you might need five inputs to, uh, to fund the transaction. So by using the block space when it's cheap to consolidate and then making payments that are very uh, thrifty by batching them, 
actually has significantly scaled up the payments per block space. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think um, very much worth thinking about is that the number of transactions is not necessarily the number of payments. So in that example, let's say I'm some big exchange or I'm Cash App, I'm, you know, uh, on the I'm sending out that batched payment as all these customers are withdrawing all in one transaction. So it might be 100 customers who are receiving some of their coins. So that's one way to think about the scaling of it. And do you have something to add? Yeah, ju- just because what you'd observe, if I, I think that point that Mark was trying to make, you would see the number of transactions on chain going down, but each transaction would be more than proportionally doing more payments. So I, I think that, that that's pretty fundamental that, if, if we're talking about capacity on chain, scaling that really corresponds to being able to do more per byte on chain and, and maxim, maximizing that really uh, rather than the number of transactions. That's maybe a good segue into talking about Taproot, probably. If you want to talk about uh, maximizing <laughs> bytes on chain, and I don't want to steal Peter's thunder, so I'll let you. Cool, then I will. Um, <laughs> So the way the um, Taproot is uh, a new proposal for Bitcoin. I guess it's not a proposal. It's going to activate in like 10 days. So it's, uh, it's happening. Yep. And the, the premise of Taproot, the premise of Taproot is that you can, um, your outputs would be represented rather than by a Bitcoin script or a hash of a script as they are now. They're just represented by a public key. And this reflects the, the kind of practical reality that most Bitcoin outputs are actually controlled by a single key that, that represents a single wallet who's signing. But much cooler than that, it represents two kind of big innovations that, that um, have shown up in the space over the last few years. One is that you can actually reuse a public key as a commitment. So rather than having to choose, do we have a hash of a script or do we have a public key, you know, what, what should be primary, um, we can actually take a public key and just turn it into a hash of a script while still letting it function as a public key. And this is kind of a cool thing because it means that if you have a, a common non-public key case is that you have some happy path where, where some people own the coin. Um, if they want to move it, even if there's multiple parties, if they all agree to move it, they, they can go ahead and sign to move it. And only if there's disagreement on whether the coin should move or not, then you need to go back to Bitcoin script and actually actually use the script. The Taproot lets you hide the script commitment inside of the public key and only reveal it in the case that is needed. And that's kind of the, the Taproot assumption is that it, it usually won't. Then the second innovation that's really cool is that it turns out a single public key does not have to represent a single signer. You can have large sets of signers. In fact, you can have different signing policies. You could have a group of like five signers and say any three of them, if any three of these five signers agree to move the coins, then the coin should move. Normally, you'd express that in Bitcoin script by using the, the check multi-sig opcode in the scripting system and list out five different keys and say, you know, three of them need to sign. With Taproot, in principle, you could have a single public key that represented all five of the signers and they, they could do an off-chain interactive protocol that would allow any three of them to then produce a single signature. So what you have on chain now is just one key key, one signature, basically when the coins move. And this gives a, a, a tremendous scalability improvement because you are now getting more, more value per byte, right? One key, one signature, even though it's actually like a three of five different policy here. Uh, it also gives a privacy boost, um, which is cool because often, often there is a trade-off. Historically, there's kind of a trade-off between privacy and scalability, where if you want more privacy, you got to layer on more like cool crypto and, and cool crypto involves a lot of heavy computations and stuff. And there's a kind of a, a cool feature in Taproot and in, in a lot of crypto, but not most of it, which is that sometimes you can gain privacy by just not revealing information to begin with, then there's nothing to validate and there's nothing to compute with. And uh, 
And so you get, you get scalability and privacy kind of go hand in hand in that sense. Well, one other thing with Taproot is um, with the hiding the scripts part, if you have a script that is complicated and has many branches, a lot of those branches might not end up being used. Like you have an if else statement, you're either doing one thing or the other. In current Bitcoin script, you have to carry both branches uh, even when one is not being used. Taproot lets you hide one of those behind a hash. And so we get to save a ton of space by just not having things we don't need. I think this this slightly less technical analogy to give here is that of the the court model. Um, so if if you think about you know the real world judicial court system, the function of a court is to to be present, and when people have disagreements, to to have it adjudicate what what the correct outcome is. But most things don't get settled in court or aren't decided by the court. They get settled outside the court, and it it even works there because the mere presence of the ability to go to a court actually is an incentive for people to behave honestly. And in in a way, we can think of the blockchain and and the networks surrounding it as a ultimate court that will always, uh, when presented with the facts, make the, the exact fair decision that was decided by the contracts up front. And in, in a way, Taproot is adding more of an ability to settle out of court because it adds a, a very cheap way of settling a transaction where everybody just agrees. And with, with this model of, well, I know if I'm being harmed by the counterparty, I can go to, to the chain. This is actually incentive for everyone to keep it cheaper and just sign and agree. And it's more private and it, it's... So perhaps as an example then, let's say in, in the Taproot world, if we had some kind of multi-sig with the five of us, the idea is using, as you were saying, the, the key path spend of where we all agreed that would be cheaper uh, in terms of on-chain um, space. Or maybe, Merch, you were able to comment on this. Yeah, sure. So a key path spend costs about 58 V-bytes. And if you, let's say, have a two or three multi-sig, uh, even if it's in the first level of leaves, it'll be about 107 or so, so significantly bigger to publish on-chain. So let's say uh, Andrew, Andy, and me are trying to have this two or three construction, and they know that Andy and I can sign together. So we'll probably be able to convince Andrew to just go along and do the key path spend because he knows already the outcome the two of us will be able to spend together. Right. Also, there is another session, uh, I think tomorrow, uh, with a Q&A about that route specifically. So Yeah, maybe go ahead. I was then going to go jump onto like feature stuff, like signature aggregation stuff. If we yeah, let's, let's go there. Let's yeah. hear that. Cool. All right. So Taproot is happening. It's in, in the future, but like in the actual future that will happen. So I have some thoughts about the, the other future that might happen. <laughs> and one, I guess maybe the most immediate idea that I mean, like immediate, like the closest to being real that is past Taproot would be signature aggregation. And this is something that actually we originally were, were going to bundle into Taproot. And we realized that, uh, that there were a lot of technical questions to answer there that resulted in, in Taproot without signature aggregation being much simpler than Taproot with signature aggregation. And, and in the interest of deploying something that we are confident in, we, we scoped it down to what we are confident in. But the idea behind signature aggregation is this. Rather than just using like one key that then all these clever multi-sig constructions have one key represent multiple signers, suppose that across the inputs in a transaction, so now you've got all, all these different inputs in a transaction, each of them have, have one key in the ideal case that maybe represents multiple signers. Within the transaction, you have one key, one signature times every input. Suppose there was a way that we could actually combine the signatures from every input 
into a single signature. So the, the, the technical distinction here to make, I guess, would be between the, this concept of key aggregation, where you have like a whole bunch of signers and, and you want to represent them just in the most compact way possible. And if they're all holding a single coin, well, one coin could be have, have one key on it, right? So you want to combine all of their identities into this one key. If instead you have multiple parties or, or the same party multiple times controlling different coins, you can't really, and, and when I say coin here, I'm, I'm, I secretly mean unsigned transaction output or, or UTXO, which is kind of the, the primitive object that the Bitcoin network uses uh, to track coins. If you have multiple coins, you can't really aggregate them in a, in a meaningful way, right? They're, they're distinct cryptographic objects. They're, they're distinct. They're distinct outputs from distinct transactions i guess like and the, their their outputs each have a key which is already on chain like you you, you can't get rid of it anymore at that time so I'm, I'm setting the stage here to say you can't combine the keys right so there's a taproot is cool you can combine all these keys but you can only combine keys when you're trying to receive coins all at once to a single address right in a single shot if you've already received multiple coins or you have multiple parties who receive different coins like kind of kind of game over as far as compressing that any further but when you spend them all together in one transaction you still have room to use kind of the same crypto to combine all of all of the signatures. And so what you could have is basically one transaction, and, and this gets kind of cool. You can imagine like an aggregate transaction like Merch is describing where you've got this massive transaction representing that spends like hundreds of inputs and has hundreds of outputs and so forth. And rather than having a single signature or a, a separate signature on every single input, you have a single signature that kind of represents the aggregate of all those other signatures. And then a verifier trying to check this would would effectively not necessarily no, but one way of no. doing it is that that the verifier actually at verification time does the key aggregation of all the published keys and then expects a single signature with the aggregate of all of them that's one way of doing it it's not the only yeah. one that, that's that's a good way to describe it yeah so then you get additional savings it's kind of cool right you can't compress them when they're, they're sitting in the utxo set but at spend time there's still more room to compress there what's especially Although, don't get too excited, right? So, signature data is already witness data. Witness data is discounted by a factor of four. Uh, the signature is 64 bytes, so you save eight V bytes, right? Okay. Right, but, but, getting... but if you have a lot of inputs, it does make a difference. Sure, sure. If you have 100 inputs, you're going to save 99 times eight V. Getting more excited. <laughs> it incentivizes uh, the aggregation of transactions. So kind of a, um, an, an unfortunate fact about Bitcoin today is that privacy would be improved if people would aggregate their transactions together more often in like coin join type constructions. But right now you don't really save a lot of space by doing this. You do, but you save like, I think like eight bytes in total or something by combining two transactions because you don't have to repeat the version byte and you don't have to repeat your uh, transaction lock time. And, but signature aggregation changes this. In signature aggregation, um, if you have two transactions, then you have, we would have to have two signatures. And if you combine them, then now you have only one signature. And kind of the more the more um, transactions that you combine together, for every one of those, there's an additional 32 bytes of data that you're saving, in addition to the, the eight that you otherwise would. Back to the show in a moment. Brains is a Bitcoin company through and through, and they are working on some of the most unique and cutting-edge projects in the Bitcoin mining industry. So they have Brains OS Plus, which is firmware for ASIC mining machines. They also operate Slushpool, which was the first Bitcoin mining pool, and they are the co-creators of Stratum V2 with Matt Corella, which is a next-generation pooled mining protocol. And so... They've got so many things going on. They are also hiring as well. So if you are a Rust developer, systems programmer, or hardware architect, go check out their website, brains.com. See the careers page to learn more. Now, if you have Bitcoin mining equipment like an ASIC and you want to 
Use the auto-tuning feature, well, that's where Brains OS Plus can help you. It optimizes your minor performance so you get more hash rate for your electricity bill. They support a range of models, S9s, X17 models, and they're working on support for the S19 models and also what's minor as well. So keep an eye out for that. The website is brains with two eyes, brains.com. Now, when it comes to securing your coins, my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet is the Cold Card by CoinKite.com. Now, the Cold Card, it looks like a little calculator, and basically you can use it to store your private keys or even generate your private keys, and it can sign messages. And you can use a micro SD card to go back and forth between your hardware wallet, the calculator size device, and plug that into your laptop or your desktop and use wallets like Spectre and Sparrow or Electrum with it. And so there's all sorts of features. They are really advanced in terms of hardware security so this is a great choice to get started with your self-custody journey and take your coins off the exchange the cold card has advanced features like the ability to have a duress pin and a brick me pin so you'll find all sorts of goodies in there when you are playing around and one actual benefit i see is when you learn to use the cold card you're actually learning a lot about how bitcoin works so that's another benefit there go to coinkite.com and order yours use the code lavera for a discount on yours And finally, Unchained Capital. Have you thought about setting up your multi-signature vault? Unchained Capital are making it easy for you to do this and you can remove single points of failure in your security setup. So don't just trust your exchange or your custodian. You want to withdraw your coins into keys that you control. And so Unchained can help you do this. They've got a concierge onboarding program which can help you even if you have never held your own private keys before. So the way this works is you can purchase that package, they'll ship you some hardware wallets, they'll do a call with you and get you set up with that vault and deposit some Bitcoin in that vault for you to get started with. Now, doing this process, you will find yourself being able to sleep a lot better at night because now you have no single points of failure. You can separate those hardware wallet keys and keep them in two different locations. And Unchained is still there as a partner for you. So go to unchained.com and check out their concierge onboarding programs. Back to the show. One question just on that. So let's say in the signature aggregation idea, would, uh, would that require more interactivity at the time of spending? Yes, that, that's an obvious restriction to, to this problem that as long as we're using elliptic curve based cryptography, signature aggregation is, is inherently only possible when the signers cooperate. There are, there are other cryptographic models that uh, allow doing that non-interactively, so where everyone can sign independently, un, un, unaware of the others, and then a third party without the keys can aggregate them into one. This is unfortunately not something we can do with elliptic curve cryptography, so signature aggregation is only possible across those signatures that are created with communication between the signers. At the same time, in, in the more common case, you'd use this when you like have multiple UTXOs yourself and you are the signer for all of them, or the signers for all of them are, are the same ones. So in that case, the, the interactivity is already there. So as an example, let's say, the, hypothetically, let's say someone makes a wallet that can collaborate with other people using that same protocol, and in that way, that's the interactivity of, let's say, aggregating across, let's say, the five of us all want to spend at the same time. Okay, now let's aggregate and let's kind of put all that into one transaction and get those uh, glorious savings that Merch is talking about. Yeah, let me correct something. Uh, 64 divided by 4 is 16 and not 8. And uh, so <laughs> you, you'd save 16 V-bytes per signature. And especially for what you write to the blockchain and what uh, gets stored on every computer, you save 64 bytes. 
right? Because the signature is actually not there. And so for, for the bandwidth that you use to transfer the transactions, you get the full savings, not the discounted savings. For the fees, you get the discounted savings of 16 V-bytes. So actually, every signature saved 64 bytes less data yeah. to write to the yeah. hard drive. So if I read you correctly, then it means every person who wants to you know download the full blockchain and you know, the downloading requirement is less and also the dollar you know the sats uh, spent is i guess it's cheaper for all of us to participate in that way so it's cheaper in two ways right so on the one hand this is super easy to do when you are spending multiple inputs yourself already and it would be natural to always do so but the thing where it gets exciting is it um, encourages multi-user transactions because now if multiple people collaborate in let's say both andy and i want to send a payment and we know let's say we're paying the same merchant or something because we're both buying a ticket to Tabcon for whatever. And we would construct our transaction together and save together like uh, the, the additional cost of the other input. So I'm curious then as well, what would be required before we could, like uh, we're talking about this idea, but what would be actually required for this kind of thing to become a reality? So well, we'll, we'll need probably something like a successor to Taproot that, that enables this. And it, this is really a, a successor in the sense that it, it will, again, be a new witness type people need to use. And I, I, this is not something that I expect in, in the short, I mean, the real short term to happen. So certainly don't, don't be like, oh, we'll, we'll adopt this once signature aggregation uh, comes along. Like we can't predict the future of, of when things may make it in. It depends on technical, logistical, uh, political reasons, uh, unfortunately. So what, what would be needed is uh, th there are a bunch of ideas on, on how to, to do this. One is with, with uh, so I mean, Basically, you need a new output type that, from the design get-go, allows to construct transactions where you have a single signature for multiple inputs. Because currently, that is not set part of the taproot rules. And with soft forks, we can only ever tighten rules. We can add restrictions where previously more things were allowed than after the soft fork. So doing this thing where there is not a signature on every single input we would need an uh, inherently new rule set. And one way that we would introduce that with would be to have, say, native SegWit version 2 outputs at some point that have a different output script type that permits the single signature across all the inputs. It would also require like, changes to data structures to support one signature for many, or at least hacking something, the existing data structure. Yeah, so the easy way of doing it, but unfortunately not, not the most useful one, is to do this with a, with a new opcode in script. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, Taproot really aims to not use script at all anymore. Like, our, our hope is that in most of the cases, the script part remains hidden and you just sign for the transaction. And that signature, that, that happy path, because it's not in a script, it isn't amenable to, to be extended with a new opcode because there are just no opcodes involved. But, uh, so so, so other ideas that could be combined with this are, are things like graft root or um, which, which is uh, basically a way of delegating signatures. Should we go into graft? No. <laughs> no? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it, yeah, it, it, I, I think it's a little hard to explain without some visualization. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, sorry, to your point around the not using opcodes, would it be that you could maybe, uh, and I mean, tell me if this is wrong, would it be like, you'd say, okay, yeah, we're going to use script and opcodes because we're getting this much of a saving and it makes it worthwhile? Or is it more like it, you're just looking for a more technically precise or cleaner way to do that? Like, 
Your goal is minimizing on-chain data. Yeah. Um, with Taproot, the cheapest way of doing that is a key path, path spend, spend because yeah. the only thing that ends up on chain is, is one signature. Period. Our hope is to make something that uses even less. Yeah. Not um, something that uses more. That, but that, that first adds a script back and and then uses kind of a bit less. Kind of unsolving the problem that yes. has been solved. Yeah. yeah. Another reason to not want to do signature aggregation inside of a script is that Taproot has has a new kind of soft fork mechanism called called that we call op success, where basically any op code that is currently undefined in Taproot will immediately end transaction processing and just or end processing of the of the of the input that's being spent and say, yeah, this input's good. And the idea is that if we later want to soft fork in new functionality, we'll take one of those op success things and we'll give it, we'll imbue it with some some meaningful semantics. And so old nodes who aren't updated will see this. They'll say, I don't know what this is. I guess it's good. And other nodes, future nodes that are updated will be able to actually validate the new rules. And the idea there is that we can be very comfortable, no matter how crazy the new semantic of this opcode is, we can be assured that we haven't done something that would cause old nodes to reject a transaction that new nodes accept. That that's a hard fork. That's like the network splits if people don't all update at once. And well, signature aggregation makes this harder because you can imagine having an op success. And then after that, you have one of these aggregated signature op. And now you can't just if you're an old node, you can't just stop processing there and then say, well, this transaction is good because you actually need that extra public key, whatever whatever extra data is associated with a signature that you need to aggregate, you need to know that. It's not just changing a, a Boolean, like this uh, this might pass or fail, the passes were good. Now it's it might fail or it might contribute a specific mathematical value to this aggregate equation. And that's something that you can't shortcut. Now that's a complicating yeah, in, 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 in short, in a signature aggregation world, you, you want soft forks to not only like uh, just restrict the rules uh, within script, but also make sure that old nodes and new nodes keep agreeing about which keys are being aggregated. And script flexibility is just inherently making that harder, uh, giving, using the example that, that Andrew Gray gave. And so I, I think the main line of thinking is that, that cross-input aggregation would mostly be happening on the happy path keys and not the ones inside script where, where it is fundamentally much harder. It's also yeah. the one where we care about it much more because that's the ones that's we the already expect, expect yeah. uh, most. Yeah. So Andrew Chow, do you have something to add there? No. Oh, no? Okay. No. Yeah. Okay. So then as an example, like if that were to come in, then people who are running Bitcoin Core and they want to be able to collaborate to lower their spend, I guess it would have to, like, how would the different clients find each other? They wouldn't. Like, yeah. Um, it would mostly, it would probably have to be something like user initiated. Like users, users talk to other people and they work out. Yeah. yeah, it would probably, probably be out of it. band in some fashion. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, so it'd be a separate way. So, I mean, in the same way that, like, a coin join coordinator... Yeah, it, it would be similar to, like, not, it's not a similar problem to what Wasabi and Join Market kind of have to do or, to, to find... Or maybe a pay join or something, like, would perhaps in the future be solved by a PSPT, partially signed Bitcoin transaction, which is another mechanism or protocol with which you can, can construct multi-user transactions right. in the first place. You could place. collaboratively. Yeah, so, so basically it would probably be part of a PSPT flow where you already were using PSPTs. Also, this isn't add an, adding anything. Today, if two parties want to construct a transaction together, they are already collaborating. Maybe not with as much interactivity that would be required to do signature aggregation, but they must be in communication already to construct the transaction. So the more interesting question is, will we have 
higher layer protocols where, say, people can find each other purely for the reason of making their transaction cheaper and doing a coin join or pay join or, or whatever. But yeah. Also, maybe besides the economic reason for doing this, one of the reasons would be, of course, that it changes how these wallets are perceived in relation to each other, right? If multiple users get together and build a transaction together, um, a observer might think that these were all held by the same entity and they, yeah, they cluster together. So in a future where we uh, might be more concerned about privacy of wallets, uh, it might be attractive not only for the economic cost, but the economic redu the reduced cost always gives us a reason to do it. So it's quite... So you wouldn't necessarily be seen as a malicious person. It's just you're just going for the cost saving as any normal person would if it's available to them. Right. Maybe that's one way to think about it. Are there any other uh, big ideas or any other kind of key topics that you think we should touch on in terms of on-chain scaling? Batch, um, batch validation? Yeah, yeah so um, we, we've been talking about signature aggregation where, where we're getting rid of some of the signatures that go on-chain, but there are multiple aspects to scalability and on-chain space is only one of them. Uh, CPU consumption is another. And it, it turns out you can sort of get similar something similar to signature aggregation without actually doing it. And that is, you, you still have multiple keys on-chain and you still have multiple signature completely created independently on-chain. But you sort of aggregate them at validation time together and then validate them all at once. And it turns out you can do this somewhat more efficiently than uh, validating multiple. And this is something that, that isn't so much being done in... This, this is a known technique, like uh, you, there are papers going back 10, 15 years explaining how batch validation uh, improves things. But in, in most settings, it isn't all that interesting. In our case, it very much is, because if we have a block with thousands of signatures in it, we really only care if all of them are valid or not. It, it's not like we care if one fails which one it is. The block is invalid, throw it away. So that that's really the use case for batch validation. And Taproot and the Schnorr signature scheme uh, it introduced have been specifically designed to permit batch validation. It's not implemented. It's so it, it's um, uh, but it, it was a di design criterion in, in BIP 340 and 341, 342, that nothing in there would interfere with the ability to batch validate, which, which is the rationale for so, some of the may, maybe more unexpected changes. For example, the taproot script logic doesn't have a check multisig anymore, uh, specifically because the check multisig as it existed before isn't compatible with batch validation. And so, oh, sorry, go on. Yeah. I was just saying, to add to that, the ECDSA signatures that we were using before Schnorr signatures uh, were not compatible with batch validation either. Although maybe in retrospect, there were some small tweaks, I guess, Satoshi could have done that would have made it possible, but, but they weren't. And we thought about that when defining the Schnorr signatures uh, for Taproot. And so, as I understand you then, would that be mostly a CPU saving or what would be yeah, the... Yeah, purely CPU saving. Yeah. So that would, that would increase, that would decrease the sync time. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so you could spin up your Bitcoin full node faster in a batch validation world, theoretically. Well, only for the, for the batch signatures. validated signatures. Yeah. Yeah, not Versus for not the, batch validated. Not the stuff, obviously, because right. that would still be but, the For old. future transactions. So, yeah. so this is also, we're not in a rush about that because it only becomes relevant once uh, taproot signatures are, are really common, commonly being, being used. Um, right, but then, of course, once you implement it, it would still apply to all transactions from that point on that Onwards, were compatible. Yeah. So once Taproot rolls out and there is Schnorr signatures in the blocks, 
uh, if you later then do the batch validation, you get all the. And it, it is not restricted to to initial synchronization, of course, right? It it also helps with a new block that comes in or a new transaction that comes in. Mostly new transaction because we cache the result of signature validation and we don't do it again. Uh, I think I'd have another small topic to touch on for on-chain scaling. So I think uh, one of the interesting things we've seen this year is that suddenly in the middle of the year, the mempool uh, stopped backlogging as much. And I'm, I'm still looking for somebody to change my mind on that. But my, my hypothesis is that this is simply due to the smaller inputs and that the, the average input size has decreased so much. Right. So we saw this year a very significant adoption of native SegWit inputs. Yeah. And the average input size I calculated has roughly decreased from 126 V-bytes to 107 or 108 V-bytes. So just by having inputs that are 15% less weight, I think that we can fit a bunch more payments and about the same volume of payments can now easily fit into our blocks and our mempool clears much more often. Yeah, I guess if this were a 2017 panel and we were talking about the interaction between the fee market and uh, and the block size, that's kind of a surprising nonlinearity, right? Because 15% sounds like 15%. You know, it's, it's cool. You, you, know, you can put it in your release notes and stuff, but you wouldn't expect it to to result in qualitative changes in in the uh, in the way the network operates. But it does. You get kind of this, this nonlinear benefit uh, to being able to cram more more meaning into every byte. I mean, it it really depends on the relation between you know supply and demand and and. If you're right at that level where you, you had more before and by removing 17% you are below, you get a dramatic difference between the mempool clearing and the mempool not clearing, uh, which is a difference between basically no fees and whatever people are willing to pay. So I don't know if that's the only reason, though. I, I feel like probably the, the ecosystem just has matured more and is is more using RBF and, and, and other... Yeah, RBF uh, transactions are also up I mean, to 25% now. There's just changes in wallet behavior and a bunch of other things within wallets can have an outsized impact. Yeah, yeah. so I guess it's like saying essentially on the margin... Because more people are using native SegWit and batching and maybe some lightning use and maybe people are a bit smarter about when they spend. The, all of these things have, I guess, right. driven this outcome. I mean, also fee rate based uh, yeah. input selection, right? If you use fewer inputs at high fee rates, the, the peaks of the mempool will be significantly lower because people add less data when the fees are already high. And then it levels a little more up during the time that the mempool is empty because people use more inputs then, right? So so it sort of shifts uh, transaction data from the high fee rate times to the low fee rate times. Also, much more dumb, just better fee estimation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> can, can Andy talk about are the Bitcoin wallet dropping change outputs more frequently? Uh, yeah, so... <laughs> well, okay, so... And, <laughs> And sure, yeah. I mean, I, I can spec. I've read some of your code, but I don't remember exactly how it works. But in, in short, I'll, I'll let you. Yeah, sure. So when you build your transactions so that you do not have to create change outputs, when you hit exactly the amount of funds that you need to pay to the recipients, um, your transactions are slightly smaller. You create fewer pieces of Bitcoin in the first place that don't then later have to get spent again. And some of the players in the space have introduced in, uh, UTXO selection algorithms that explicitly seek for these sort of um, input sets when they build transactions. One of them was that Bitcoin Core merged a few uh, pull requests this year that had been 
open for quite some time. Yes. Uh, and uh, they introduced this behavior into Bitcoin Core. Now, I don't know exactly how many people are using Bitcoin Core I, because... I also don't think that would really have a significant impact on transaction sizes because... I mean, even in simulations I've run, it's not that many that have changeless transactions. Yeah. Well, 4% more transactions without change is almost... Anyway. Yeah. 4% is 4%. Yeah. So we've only got a couple minutes left, guys. So uh, maybe if each of you could just kind of uh, just give a quick sort of summary of kind of where you, where you think things are going. Uh, what, what do you think are the most uh, fruitful uh, pathways for research and development? I think that despite all the very interesting technical ideas that the... The most impactful one is is how people use wallets and expectations around uh, you know capacity of, of on-chain transactions and, and uh, alternatives to it. I think in the third kind of future that probably won't happen, there is some new technology involving zero-knowledge proof that we could in principle use to compact the entire blockchain into a, a compact proof that people could verify that would let them do initial block verification uh, effectively instantly. <laughs> this is what people want to hear <laughs> he, he did say he doesn't think it'll happen but <laughs> so the utrixo project is is, yeah. is uh, an idea in, in in that direction yeah. right so okay. i think the biggest saving for block yeah. space is just not creating transactions so if you just don't spend just huddle guys just huddle, just huddle. <laughs> okay guys so we've pretty much got to wrap up maybe andrew if you just got a last quick yeah. comment and then uh, we'll wrap it up i mean my main thing is just that uh Finding smarter ways to use the space that we already have instead of trying to increase sizes. We can think of new ways that use every byte more efficient. Right, to be more efficient. All right, guys, this has been an excellent panel. Thank you, everyone. Give a, a round of applause for our panelists. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that panel discussion. And remember, a shout out for TabConf. That's T-A-B-C-O-N-F. That's the Atlanta Bitcoin Conference. So tabconf.com. And you can check out uh, that conference there. And of course, make sure you keep an eye out on them for what's coming up in future years with their conference. Now, there will be a show notes and I'll get a transcript done for this episode. I'm sure many of you will be interested for that. So get that at stefanlevera.com slash 321. Thanks for listening and I'll see you in the Citadels.